Businesses are born out of an entrepreneur's vision of doing something better than it has been done in the past or creating a new product or service that serves a need. Can a business leader who is primarily interested in the delivery of value to his or her shareholders think about value creation in a slightly different way, in a more systemic way? Now, there's nothing wrong with delivering value to shareholders and and certainly most businesses in the world focus primarily on operating that way. But there's a sense that there's been a shift in the thinking around how we create value and how to design businesses to be more sustainable and certainly more resilient in the long term. And one of those considerations is how we deliver value to more stakeholders than just the most senior or most powerful in the organization. My guest on the show today, Tom Fells, thinks about this a lot. And he thinks about it so much, in fact, that he started a business called Anamarum that helps leaders like you and I like many other business leaders in the world today, to, to work through this exact challenge, to work through the challenge of understanding purpose and impact, not just as nice things to talk about in business, but as fundamental strategic differentiators. Uh, it was really great chatting to Tom. Tom and I both come from an advertising background, so we, we share uh, post-traumatic advertising stress disorder. And uh, he's a wonderful thinker. He has a real heart uh, for this country, a real heart for impact, and is doing some absolutely remarkable stuff through his business. Uh, I'll trust you'll enjoy this show as much as I enjoyed my conversation with Tom. Thanks for listening. So Tom, thanks so much for taking time out to have a conversation with me. It's really cool speaking to you because in a way it's a little bit like speaking to a mirror, not not because you're uh, much better dressed, <laughs> but because we followed similar journeys in a sense in that we were both involved in the leadership of advertising agencies and have both transitioned fairly recently and, and are both really interested in the world of leadership and especially leadership in an increasingly uncertain world. Tell me a little bit about the transition and, and what sparked it and, and what you've learned through that process. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It's, uh, as we connected earlier in, in the week, uh, I think there's a lot of similarities in our stories. And, and what's more important is that there's a, a shared mindset around what the future ought to look like. Yeah. And I think just going back to the, the, the background that we've both had in the agency world, one of the major benefits of that exposure was being able to see into so many different kinds of businesses, yes. seeing how they tick, seeing how their cultures enable them to do the types of work they do. Uh, and what that, what that helps to create is a very holistic view of what good business ought to look like. And no doubt in your experience, you would have connected with a couple of, call them clients, client businesses more than others because of some things you saw inside those businesses that were truly special. Mm. And I suppose what on my move, you know, out of the agency world and, and into the world we're in now, which is one of advisory and consulting and, you know, in, in part thought leadership and trying to build community was really trying to take those glimmers of really special hope or characteristics and to take those and build it out into a model that we could scale into the world to say, what if more businesses were like this? Hmm. What if they held principles and philosophies that 
we're truly pioneering in the way that we believe business ought to play a role in society. And so, you know, taking that mantle on, I've made it my mission to try and spread the spread the word, but beyond just spreading the word, doing the work that helps businesses orient, orient themselves for a more inclusive and uh, sustainable future, as it were. And did you have a, a really clear idea in mind for what you wanted to create towards the end of your agency journey? Or did you feel like that evolved or blossomed once you were sort of free from the entrapments of a traditional kind of corporate environment? Was it a progression or was it, did you kind of wake up one day and go, this is exactly what I want to build and, and then create it? So I think um, it's, it's interesting. The, the path is never, never truly clear. What I found in my exposure to businesses was that those that seemed to be more purpose-oriented or fueled by a higher purpose other than profit were ones that I really connected to. And actually coming out of the agency world, I had the opportunity to join a business called Singita, mm. which is a luxury conservation tourism business. And I suppose it's renowned around the world for the fact that it's a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime destination for the well-heeled. But when I looked into that business, what I realized that far beyond the luxurious safari experience was a truly purposeful business model. You know, that business cannot exist. It cannot offer the service and the experience that it does without the support of remote local communities, without the work it has to do to safeguard the local environment. And so those principles of, you know, a more holistic business philosophy are deeply embedded in their entire operating model. Mm. And that's what it attracted me to the business initially. And having you know, spent time as leading that business, I realized that that type of thinking could be scaled into businesses in any industry, really, so long as the leadership impetus was there and that the expertise to help to guide them on that journey was available. And that's the opportunity I saw. So from a mission perspective, I think it was absolutely clear what I wanted to do. I think it's still going to remain, you know, an unfolding journey as time progresses. And as I think the mentality of business over the next decade or so really starts to open up to not just want it, but need this kind of change. Yes. I imagine that's something you and I are going to spend some time later fleshing out is whether this is a to what degree we'll get to choose the option in the future. And, and I think that's a worthwhile debate uh, because it speaks to incentives and it speaks to motives. And as you and I have discovered over the years, that's a, that's a massive part of what leads decision-making in the most powerful organizations in the world. I mean, what else could, right? And that, uh, so, so this led you to starting a, a consulting business, a services business, and you've called that Anamarum. Is that right? Have I pronounced that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Tell me, it's a really interesting name. Tell me about the name. Yeah, it's a, it took me a while to crack. It's actually a Latin construct. It's a combination of two words. So rem uh, means purpose and anima is, you know, to animate is derived from the word anima, which is an old Latin word, which brings, which means to bring life to something or to give courage to something or to breathe life into something. So, you know, I suppose the most direct translation would be to give life to purpose. And so, you know, incumbent in my mission or incumbent in the name is my mission. That's very cool. That's a great story. I can see how that would have t taken some time to arrive at. That, that's incredible. Uh -huh. And 
Tell me about the early reception to your offering. How do you tell people about what you're creating? What is the, for lack of a better phrase, elevator pitch? And then what has the response to that pitch or that positioning been? Yeah, you know, it is quite hard to articulate, particularly to people who aren't familiar with the language of conscious business. But in summary, Anamarum is a conscious business advisory. We help businesses to to bridge this transformational gap from where they are today to becoming more socially inclusive businesses. And that orients them around higher purpose. It orients their culture, their leadership, and their stakeholder orientation rather than solely shareholder orientation um, towards shared value creation. In saying that, I think almost every business I know will say that they have a purpose. Unfortunately, that purpose is often something that was a result of a branding exercise that is filed away in sort of file 13 and isn't actually a part of the materiality of how that business makes its decisions, how it creates uh, an employee experience and how it integrates stakeholders beyond simply customers uh, or supply chain into their, into their philosophy of working. And so I'm finding that the initial appeal in conversation with people is there. Everyone can relate to it. Everyone's, everyone loves the idea of purpose and of working towards a higher purpose. At the same time, I think people are necessarily prepared to or don't know how to make the commitment to bridge that gap, to live and work with purpose, because it does require effort. It does require attention. You know, it's beyond the normal protocol of, of just doing business, running your operations, being busy in activity. And I think that now there are tools that are increasingly becoming available to help businesses do that. I think more and more there are, there's expertise to partner with leadership and to help guide them on the journey. You know, knowing you want to do something and going and doing it are two entirely different things. Sure. And uh, I think if you can find trusted partners to help walk that journey with you and to navigate that process, that's going to help you get where you need to go a tremendous amount faster. What I'm hearing you say is that for many organizations, there is a gap between, let's call it stated purpose, the purpose that we put on our website or on our marketing material, print out on a, on a vinyl and mount on Perspex and in the entrance hall of the, of the HQ, there's a, there's a gap between stated purpose and execution or reality, uh, what, what, we, what we say and what we do. I mean, I could argue that the same applies for the words consciousness or the word impact or the word social. There are many of these words that we have come or risen into prominence over the last uh, couple of years that have that are, are certainly being touted by people like you and I as being inherently good. But one of the things that we've spoken about before is that you know, all businesses have impact and all businesses have purpose, those might not be benevolent. We might go so far as to say that they're destructive. How do you help leaders differentiate between what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, which is in essence purpose and impact? You know, I'm, I'm creating jobs. I'm, you know, as long as I am able to provide value to my shareholders and keep people employed, this business has has a positive impact. How could you argue against that? What? How do you address the more skeptical side of this that says, you know, the the social responsibility of of a business is to be profitable and and to provide value to its shareholders? What's your response to that? 
Yeah, I think you've you've asked a couple of questions there. So, you know, if I rewind back to your to the narrative around impact, words like consciousness, shared value, social enterprise, many of those words have, have become almost generic in the nature, and certainly in the use of those of those words, because you know, rewind the clock, purpose was a big buzzword eight ten years ago. It still yeah. remains as important as as it ever has been. And when I hear people talk about the post-purpose economy, I think to myself, well, why does it have to be that? Is it just because you need another another angle to try and stimulate business or create interest or gain publicity? You know, I think purpose is as relevant as it ever has been. But as you say, there are varying degrees of impact. And you know, I, I think one really needs to start examining when you when you say impact, for whom are you creating impact, and what what impact is it? So when you get into the narrative of shared value versus shareholder value, mm. one needs to start saying, okay, so we're creating impact. We're creating employment. That's great. Who are we employing? Are they just employees or are they uh, potentially going to be future shareholders? Uh, how, what are we doing from a skills development perspective? What's the differential between the highest level of pay and the lowest level of pay? Starting to think about impact not in a very linear sense but more in a network sense of system well, all of our stakeholders a system a system thinking uh, approach because the old narrative of business which has got us to where we are today has been very much about maximum you know create employment and maximize shareholder value i think um covid-19 aside we were rapidly entering uh, a space where that was no longer proving to be sustainable and People have very quickly forgotten about the enormous pressure, uh, climate change, and other sort of existential forces opposing on the economy, because we're focusing in the here and now. But none of those none of those issues are going away, and so we are likely right after this to have to refocus ourselves on another another very macro perspective in business. And more and more, there is stimulus to say change is needed. And urgent change is needed. The final conversation of the first season where I spoke to uh, Professor Root from the University of Stellenbosch, we spoke about how there's almost two sets of changes or change that any business is exposed to. There are things that that feel very close and very intimate and very near to us as business leaders. So yeah, a senior staff member resigns or uh, there's a new competitor in your sector or there's a changes or fluctuations in the currency uh, uh, whatever it might be there's there's things that feel very close to us and feel very impactful on our and then there's these more as you said macro we know they're there but they are more difficult to quantify or observe or touch and feel in our organizations especially if we take a short-term view of the lifespan of the business what is interesting, you know, and not wanting to diminish the, the obvious human tragedy of the moment, but what is interesting about the COVID-19 crisis was it, it is an accelerated experiment in systems change. And that has the leaders least concerned about um, systemic impact, thinking about, wow, that person over there that, that is not wearing their mask or is contributing in some way, shape or form towards economic growth or, or, or downfall for that matter is a part of the same system that I am. I am, whether I want to be or not, connected to that person. 
Do you think leaders will, off the back of this thing, think differently about this? And and how will that translate to behavior? I think before we start talking about business, we have to start talking about humanity. You know, we are all people, all leaders are people, and all organizations are formed. Yes, there's machinery and technology involved, but ultimately it's people who are making the decisions. And this time has definitely been uh, an inflection point where people have been forced to be introspective about the lives they're living, the work they're doing, spending time with family, their health, all sorts of things. The consciousness of society as a whole has definitely been affected by this. And so I think you can't simply emerge into what people are calling the new normal, you know, unchanged by this experience. And I'm, I'm proposing that we don't just accept that there will be a new normal, that we actually proactively try to create a better normal because mm. of the experience we've had over this time. And what you say about systemic change is interesting because effectively what we've had is a break point. I've heard recently about businesses who've had projects and, and products in the pipeline for three to five years and really the impetus just hasn't been there to get it to market. Yeah. They've got them to market two months. Mm. What does that tell you? You hit this point almost of no return where you just have to get something done. You have to change the way you're doing things. And I'm hoping that on a more macro systemic level, we don't need many more of these stimulus breakpoint moments to start actually accommodating change that we know is going to have to come who were planning those product development streams three or five years ago, they knew those products were going to come to market at some point. But you get pushed into a position where you, where you actually just have to accelerate it you know, and turn it around in no time at all. It just means that, as you say, it's an acceleration of change. It's uncomfortable, which is what people you know, tend to try and avoid. But in the end, looking back six months, eight months, will those businesses who've made changes regret or benefit from them. I think over the long term or even the medium term, those businesses will be very glad that they've made the changes they have made. So it's going to appear to people who are listening to this conversation that I've engaged in a series of chess moves to try and get you into into the corner of the board here. But but I, I didn't do this on purpose, but it, they'd be forgiven for thinking that I did. But there's a paradox or, or potentially a, a bit of an oxymoron emerging here, right? So what we're saying is, when we are forced to, we are able to change in quite remarkable ways. If you really want to see organizations and individuals adapt, show them adversity, show them uh, a deep-seated, inescapable challenge, and then watch them do remarkable things. You know, I'm listening to an interesting podcast about, uh, about what conditions create the circumstances for war, you know, unprecedented conflicts between nations. And you hear about what people are able to achieve or, or why they behave the way they do against uh, uh, you know, insurmountable odds. And yes, I agree with you. We've seen organizations, some of them adapt in, in wonderful ways, and then others who should have adapted really well, not. My question is, can leaders choose to do this if the pressure doesn't exist? And if the pressure doesn't exist, why would they? You know, if I'm not, if I don't need to change, if I don't need to adapt, if I'm not in pain, why would I want to? <laughs> yeah, this is a great debate, uh, Mike. And I am a self-confessed optimist, you know, and I don't believe that the conditions of 
pain and trauma need to spark any kind of change. I think that choice is a wonderfully powerful tool that we have. Mm. So even without a crisis uh, in front of us, or we're right, we're right in the middle of it, even without those terms and that pressure on business, I think not just in our, in our businesses, but in our lives, we have a, a likely future and a preferable future. And I think that the preferable future state is one that we need to choose to pursue and to do the hard yards to get there and to take on the, you know, the difficulties, the uncertainty that might come with embarking on that journey of change. But I certainly also believe that leaders in business have been lacking the evidence that supports this as a better way of doing business, a more inclusive stakeholder centric way of doing business as being good business. Now I think evidence has come to the fore uh, and most not most studies because always there's always going to be a balance but there are many studies now that point to and support the fact that more inclusive higher purpose-led business is in the long term more profitable if this is your first time listening to the one-eyed man and you're wondering what i'm trying to achieve here why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one it's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. There is an emerging set of data or cases that suggest that perhaps even the most selfish ends could be gained through the most unselfish actions. <laughs> if we take a very cynical view of it. Yeah, so an example, and this is, you start saying, well, what's the data set? Uh, you know, how big is the data set? An example, there was a 10-year study done by Millwood Brown and Jim Stengel, who's a, a marketing director at the time. 50,000 businesses over 10 years, and they were looking at the highest growth businesses. The top 50 all had a very clear higher purpose beyond the pursuit of profit. And if you had invested in that portfolio of 50 companies over the following 10 years, so this was mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, or, uh, yeah, early to mid, if you'd invested in that portfolio over the, of the subsequent 10 years, it returned 400% higher than the S&P 500. Mm. You know, so 50,000 businesses as a case is, I think, is, I think quite a good, um, a good data set. So there's an incentive component. There's also a risk component. One of the responsibilities of corporate leaders is to mitigate risks or at least plan for them. And more and more, we're seeing, um, I think, the, the top five midterm risks by the World Economic Forum are all ESG-related, environment, social or societal, and governance-related. So the likes of Moody's is now saying one in three rating decisions are going to be materially affected by ESG considerations. So you've got risk, you've got reward. And I think you also have capital movement now, commitments mm. by global asset leaders like BlackRock to say, you know, they've got $7 trillion under management. They've said that the future of their investing decisions are going to be underpinned by sustainability. That purpose is the long-term engine room of profitability. You've got Standard Chartered saying they're going to spend $75 billion behind the sustainable development goals. There's $12 trillion of market opportunity available against the sustainable development goals. So there's there's an economic opportunity there. Mm. And more and more, as you start to piece the puzzle together, you see that this is where the world of work is going. And 
it is a choice. Do you choose to preempt that move to try and get ahead to get to gain a disproportionate advantage, or will you wait till you reach a point of pain, disruption, uncertainty, conflict to make that choice? You know, sustainable is a really interesting choice of word there. I prefer the word sustainable to the words impactful or purposeful only because it immediately conjures up a time frame. It introduces the variable of time into our thinking. If you ask any any organizational leader, let's not even make it about business. It could be politics. It could be civil society. How long do you want your organization to be around for? The answer is going to be forever. As long as, long as possible. Uh, is That's a dumb question, right? Like, I mean, surely... Surely the answer is, by default, as long as is possible. And so that is our hope and our expectation, almost regardless of the circumstance that you're in. But, but what I think you and I see so often is that the behaviors of the most influential people in those organizations don't necessarily align to, to the type of practices, even if we just look at shareholder value. Even if we take only that lens, over the long term, the decisions that you need to make to guarantee shareholder value, if we put a five to 10 year time frame on that, are going to be extremely different to the decisions you'd make if you take a quarterly or, or annual view on value creation because of the number of unpredictable variables that you suddenly have to put into the mix. And some of those unpredictable variables, again, if, even if we only take a shareholder value creation lens on it, are going to be societal. They're going to be systemic variables. So, I, I mean, is the starting point for even the most self-interested leader thinking about time frame? How, do, how does that change one's thinking and how much is that a part of what you do with your clients when you, when you consult to them? Yeah, that's, that, you, you put three very important components into the mix there. One is incentives. The second is self-interest. Mm -hmm. And the third is time frame. And yeah. it's very clear that most people think their businesses should be around for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and going back to that word impact, one would ask, well, what is the impact that you hope to have during that time? Mm. Is it about making a lot of profit? Is it about, you know, elevating people out of poverty? Is it about education? What is it that this business is there to do? And if it's just about profit, is that going to be something that's going to motivate your staff over the long term? You know, I think that a lot of particularly listed companies, because this is the reality they report quarterly, their CEOs are pressured to produce quarterly results. They may speak in long-term rhetoric. You know, the short-termism of their results is, is, is what creates the incentive. And, and in most instances, their self-interest is aligned with short-term results too. Mm. So this is the challenge. The challenge is hopefully to go back to why this business exists in the first place. You know, businesses, I'd say universally, are born out of an entrepreneur's vision of doing something, either doing something better than it has been done in the past or creating a new product or service that serves a need. That, I think, gets forgotten when we get into a big corporate machine of 
many moving parts, a lot of activity, a lot of pressure on short-termism. And so the simplest thing to do is to go back to that and say, well, so why is this business here in the first place? And how long do we want it to be around for? And if that's why it exists in the first place, then let's project ourselves forward into this, you know, perceived future, 30, 50 years. Why aren't we thinking in those timeframes? So I was on a fascinating call facilitated by the university that I studied with last year with one of the co-founders of Klarna. I don't know if you know Klarna, the, yeah. the Swedish yeah. online payment system. Uh, Niklas, Niklas Adelberth, uh, Adelberth, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And and the first question that was asked of him, and bearing in mind he's in a closed online forum of students that are studying social entrepreneurship and impact. And the question that was asked of him is, where did it start? Why did you birth the, or conceive of this company? So he says, well, I started by making fake IDs and I realized how much money I could make out of that. And then... I got caught and then I had a fine that I had to pay off. And, and it, it says he starts by telling the story of how he was breaking the law and that this was his opportunity to get filthy rich and unapologetically talking about that. This is where I started, but my goal was to be stinking rich. And now this is a guy that, you know, runs the Norskin foundation and, you know, he's building these impactful incubators uh, in Kigali and in London what I loved was hearing about his journey from, you know, f- filthy capitalist, filthy entrepreneur in inverted commas to, to somebody who understands, understands the impact of a broader systems view of value creation. Now there's two ways to look at that, right? The one way is to say, yeah, but there is a criticism of the philanthropic revitalization of many entrepreneurs that says, well, yeah, but you, you know, you're just trying to fix a system that you actually helped create in the first place. So it kind of discounts your philanthropic efforts, but maybe some of us need to go through that journey to realize where value and meaning really is. You know, the, the question I want to ask you is how do you help leaders go from a self-interested view of the world to a systems view of the world? How do you, facilitate that journey of discovery through NMRM? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And, you know, I do think that some people start on a journey motivated by profit and discover through that journey that there's something beyond profit that they're achieving. And so that's very attractive. NMRM doesn't cater to everyone. I think there's a reality that there are some people who just aren't going to resonate with the positioning, who believe that what they're doing in business is the right way to, to be running a business with the right objectives and the, and the right principles at heart. What I'm interested in is talking to people who are leaders of organizations who believe that there could be a better way, but don't necessarily know how to get there. It can be highly profitable businesses. And the irony for me about tech businesses is that because they run on such high margins, you see them doing unbelievable things in entrepreneurship, you know, education acceleration, robotics, AI training, they become very philanthropic by nature. Mm. There's margin there. So I think the first sort of mantra of of, uh, philanthropic work is if there's no margin, there's no mission. And so you need that. You You can't sacrifice all margin for the sake of trying to pursue pursue a worthy cause because ultimately you're not gonna be able to scale that cause. And so it's this balance of Finding the right will, 
finding the right vehicles, as in businesses, that are ripe for change and are open to change. You can't change something that's, that's really just not open to it on a, from a cultural perspective. And sometimes you need to break the model and show them things that they don't know. So the examples mm. I used earlier about the market opportunity, you know, this idea of risk mitigation, the success stories, the, the likes of um, the Klarna entrepreneurs who, who now run what is called a social unicorn incubator. You know, I think anyone who reads those stories can get inspired. And so if you can bring the right insight to the table that broadens the horizons and the spectrum of, of how leaders are thinking and how organizations are thinking to show them different ways of doing things and then show them the macro context within which their business exists to make it relevant to them, you can open up the narrative uh, and the dialogue around how to start embarking on the journey to get to that future state. You know, you and I live in this fascinating place that is for so many reasons, I would argue incomparably complex. <laughs> if you talk about a hotbed for an appreciation of systems complexity, South Africa is is the most fertile soil, right? So it, it would follow that nowhere else in the world do you more need the type of leader who fully appreciates that and can understand how to create value in that context and with that context and in such a way as, as I guess, sustains not only the, the possibility of the future success of their business, but the environment, the social environment that it was created in. This is the place, right? The, the, if you want to learn about this, uh, there is no greater crucible for that kind of thinking. So the, the question that follows is knowing that you are in that environment, how do you wish our most influential socially minded or conscious business leaders would act in order to advance this agenda? And, and who, who do you think is doing that well uh, already? Who do you look at as being a good example of this right now? Yeah, there are definitely some strong leaders in South Africa who have adopted this mantra, this way of doing business. I was actually reading earlier today, Adrian Gore of Discovery, who's now sharing some of the methodologies and protocols that they've contributed to creating as, you know, call it sort of open sourced IP. Discovery being such an innovative game change of a business in its sector. What I think we are lacking is more consistent articulation of purpose from leadership. I think as a result, we are also lacking community in this conscious business space. It feels like businesses that are on this journey are very much on it alone and operating in isolation. And part of my mission is to create community around the idea of conscious business. And um, I've mm. been fortunate to connect to an organization called uh, the B Corp organization, essentially short for Benefit Corporation, who have a certification and a measurement tool to help businesses actually measure aspects of their governance, stakeholder orientation, uh, commitments to environment, and so on and so forth. And there's 3,300 businesses around the world, the, probably the most prominent of which is Patagonia. And it irks me actually that everyone references Patagonia every time they talk about a conscious business. You know, it's always the poster child. It, it almost becomes self-defeating because people start to wonder, are there others? <laughs> and the answer is yes, there are others. There's nine 
certified B corporations in South Africa at the moment. Um, I did not know that. Okay. I've had the pleasure of, uh, of working with one of them recently, which is IQ Business, a management consultancy in Johannesburg. And they're very committed to this move. And so, you know, you see these pockets of hope, I'll call them pockets of hope, where there is committed action uh, and real intent, but they, we don't get a synergy effect of many of these organizations coming together to produce system change. Rather, they are great beacons of hope operating as single entities uh, in, in industry. Yeah. Uh, IQ is, is Adam Craker, I think. That's is that right. correct? That's yes. right. Yeah, so I, we didn't talk about B Corp before, but um, I actually, the, the community manager for the UK B Corp movement was on my program last year and, and so got to understand. Uh, my first exposure to, to B Corps was the New Resource Bank in San Francisco a couple of years ago and it's part of a delegation of entrepreneurs that visited with some really interesting uh, startups and established uh, tech businesses and they were the one that really stood out to me because of their really interesting approach to finance uh, around sustainability and impact. Now, again, the, the, the cynical listener might go, that sounds like more regulation, that sounds like more compliance and you know one of one of the criticisms of our current administration is that for you know as important as SMEs and startup businesses are to the health of our economy and job creation and and investability we we are making it really difficult for for small businesses to exist do you see things like b corp uh, registration as compliance or do you see it through a, a different lens how does it make sense for for a business that's already exposed to a degree of compliance or regulation to align with another um, organization like that yeah it definitely does require more effort but i think importantly talking about the the role it can play is it goes beyond sort of a, a certification level effort stream i think it's actually more about differentiation just in, a, in in an industry with many probably many competitors, how do I differentiate? And more and more, I'm thinking that products and services do differentiate you, but philosophy is going to be the future form of, call it intangible differentiation. So the likes of Apple, I think their, their market cap is worth about, the market value of their brand is about 42% of their total market cap. So you elevate yourself out of your product and service level, and you say, how are we producing value above and beyond our products and services. And I think adopting a more holistic framework of business, which requires you to you know, apply some rigor to the way that you go about doing business, is a way to ensure that your business is going to be sustainable. It's going to be differentiated beyond the product and service that you actually offer. And I believe it's going to make you uh, attractive. I think some businesses that talk first and foremost about purpose and their mission, and then only far later about products and services are the ones that stand out in their industries. Okay, it's really interesting. Yeah. I can't help thinking that that there might be people listening to this, Tom, who are who are saying, well, that it sounds great. And I love what I'm hearing. And yes, you've shifted my thinking on this topic a little bit. But where do I start if I want to start on that journey? What would your advice be to individuals who are intrigued by understanding a little bit more of the systems approach to purpose and impact and, and want to shift their organizations a little closer to an intentional, or as you, you said before, conscious approach to value creation. What are the resources? What are the places? Where would they begin? 
As always, the internet's a wealth of, of knowledge and, and insight. I would suggest that, particularly related to something like the B Corp certification, that people go and have a look. The, there's a B impact assessment, which is free. You just register mm-hmm. and do it. <clears throat> it takes about 45 minutes. And I think what will happen is it'll open your eyes to things that you will see as, well, that's good business, but you might not have integrated it into your makeup. And so you could just take a couple of key insights from doing that exercise in under an hour, as well as learning a a bit more about that movement to help shape whether that's for you. And I think it's about finding what is best for you. If you want to be more about innovation, maybe the open EXO environment is better for you. There are tons of organizational movements, accreditations and frameworks that you can look at. And I think even if you were to go look at all of them and borrow what you feel is relevant for your business, you don't have to commit to a particular operating system, but to educate yourself, you know, that gap between intention, you know, the desire to hold purpose uh, ahead of your operations and the materiality of living it, there always is a knowledge gap between the two. And then there's an action gap that follows the knowledge that's acquired. And I guess following from that, Tom, if people want to further engage with your content and certainly your business, what are the important links or how do they reach out to you? Can they reach out to you? If you could share some of those, that that would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You can contact me on Tom at animarum.com. That's A-N-I-M-A-R-E-M.com. Visit the website at animarum.com. There's a lot on there and there's quite a few resources from press and sort of blog thought leadership uh, perspective. Uh, And as always, LinkedIn is is a a go-to channel as well. Tom, you've been so generous with your time, not just today, but on on our previous call as well. Thank you so much. I'm personally very excited to see what Anamarum will do in the dent it'll have in, you know, in the, the mini universe of South Africa and, and hopefully beyond our borders in the future. Thank you for the boldness and the courage to to try something new. And uh, yeah, I wish you the very best luck, not just for the immediate future, but the sustainable one. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. It's been great to chat. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.